Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, David Roscoff, and I'm coming to you today from Denver, Colorado, where I can see the Rocky Mountains right from where I'm sitting before going to Washington tomorrow. We are joined today by our usual gang, and starting with a member of our usual gang who we have missed a lot in the past couple of months, Dr. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome back, Corey. How are you? It is a joy to be back. I have missed deep state nerddom. Well, <laughs> the nerds are here and they're waiting. They're waiting for you. Speaking of nerds, we also have with us, of course, Rosa Brooks, the uh, Associate Dean of Everything at Georgetown University Law School. And we are also joined by Edward G. Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? Thank you for mentioning my middle initial. It's a rare event. <laughs> what does it stand for? Stand for? Uh, that, well, that, that's, that's uh, undisclosed information. <laughs> that's Since you asked, fair. You brought it up. Godfrey, which is really embarrassing. But there you go. And then it wasn't my choice. I feel like you should just shorten it to God. Yeah, exactly. You know, on one of my health insurance cards, because there wasn't enough space, it did. It was Edward God Luce, which I thought. Okay. I feel like you should really lean into that, Ed. Yeah, no, and it intimidates people. I know this because my younger daughter, when she was real little, couldn't say the letter L. And so we went into a bakery one day, and her name is Laura. And we went into a bakery, and the baker said, what's your name, little girl? And she said, Yahweh. <laughs> <laughs> and the baker, the baker was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, my father had some story that he likes to tell about. I, he must have read this somewhere about the guy who went to court to try to legally change his name to God. And the judge was sort of stymied by this and struggling to come up with a reason to say, no, you really can't do that. He said, well, no, you, you have to have a first name, a middle name and the last name. And so the guy said, all right, I'll be ubiquitous perpetuity God. (laughs) We're out there. Ubiquitous perpetuity God is running around. Okay, you guys know, right, where we get the the three names where it originates, right? It having a first, middle, and last name was the sign that you were a citizen of Rome. 
Fellow citizens got the right to bear a tree in them. I don't have a middle name. I feel very disenfranchised. Well, you are not a citizen of Rome, so it seems appropriate. You're a barbarian. You're a citizen of the world. <laughs> well, I, you know, what I would strongly uh, suggest is that all the nerds of Deep State Radio get onto the Twitterverse and suggest middle names for Rosa. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> bad dog, David. Bad, bad dog. Oh, boy. Let's get, you know, get serious. And that will get us pretty serious pretty quickly. I want to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to start with what's going on in Europe. And then we will segue into Corey's op-ed yesterday in the New York Times. But first, let's talk about, on Sunday, there were elections in Italy. And it appears that a coalition of the right is going to take power in Italy, control both houses of the Italian parliament. The new prime minister runs a party called the Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, which had traces its roots to some supporters of Benito Mussolini. Uh, and she's the moderate in the party because she is joined by a corrupt plutocrat and Putin fan, Silvio Berlusconi. And then we also have the Northern League in this, which is kind of the fringiest and also Putin supported group. And this follows a, a win of the right in Sweden. It follows a shifting rightward even within the British Conservative Party. It follows the French right wing doing better than they've done in, in past elections in the, the most recent set of uh, French elections. And of course, it follows the embrace by the MAGA part of the Republican Party of Viktor Orban who is a racist and a xenophobe and doesn't like democracy very much. And so the first thing I want to do is say, what are we to make of this trend, Corey? I don't know, David. I mean, I, I do genuinely believe Tip O'Neill's notion that all politics is local. But, you know, the numbers are starting to add up. I am not confident though, that I understand whether the same forces that drove the popularity of our disgraced former president in this country are generalizable to other societies. That is, is there a malaise circulating among democracies, or is there something specific going on in these countries that tells us that the sequence isn't one isn't telling us anything about another. I honestly don't know enough about the subject to make a judgment. What do you what do you think, Rosa? I mean, so, one thing that they certainly have in common, or some of them do, is that Orban and Le Pen and the Northern League and the Brexit crowd all had the active support of Vladimir Putin at one point or another. I'd be more willing to say that I think, yes, there is a malaise in democracies that is general. And on top of that, I think that the, the phenomenon, sort of the sense of culture threat, identity threat that has partly fueled Trump's rise in the United States is at play in many European countries as well. I think the malaise about democracies is just, you know, boy, COVID suck, the economy sucks, et cetera. 
when that happens, whenever that happens, we know that everybody starts looking around and saying, whose fault is it? You know, and if you say, well, maybe it's our democracy's fault, maybe maybe somebody, a strong person could just somehow do better, that that fantasy can pop up for people. You know, and I, I do think that the last few years um, around the globe, and this is quite clear in the in the polling on this, and Pew's done a lot of work on this, it is quite clear that that sort of disenchantment with democracy, that that lack of enthusiasm, that fear that it won't work, that's been going up pretty much pretty much everywhere, except one or two places such as Canada, where they still like democracy. I'm happy to say. But the identity threat thing, I think, is the is the is the other thing. You know that that a a mostly white European population feeling super threatened by lots of immigrants coming in. And it's totally irrational and it's totally, you know, its results can be cruel and awful, discriminatory. But I suspect that that's a big part of what's going on, even though many people wouldn't necessarily say it out loud, you know, that that you get the people who will say it out loud, uh, like, like some of the leaders we've been talking about. And then you get people who wouldn't say it out loud, but would vote for them in the privacy of the voting booth because they're animated by some of the same fears. Yeah. When you had a New York Times columnist today or yesterday saying that the influx of immigrants and the challenge that this poses to the traditional societies of Europe is the great challenge Europe faces today. This was Russ Doubted, right? How do you pronounce it? How do you say it? I think it's just the thought. Yeah, I think. But who knows? I once was at a wedding and I sat at a table with him. I still don't know how to pronounce his name. But in any event, he asserted that. What do, what do you think of this trend, Ed? Well, I mean, in Italy, that's a particular trend. But, you know, if, if it were the sort of fuel of populism, then they'd have been electing fascists for the last 40 years. You know, they've had the lowest birth rate in Europe for a very, very long time. And it's been below the population replacement rate for a very, very long time. They've also been receiving a lot of immigration for a very, very long time. There's a couple of things, one very particular to the Italian election and one more general to European democracies. What was particular to the Italian election is that the right-wing parties cooperated and did seat sharing that made it much more easily winnable. The share of right-wing vote didn't actually go up very much. And it's sort of, it's particularly unfortunate that Italy's first far-right post-fascist leader since the war is succeeding probably Italy's best leader for a very long time, Mario Draghi, who's done a very good job. So it's disconcerting. It is, of course, also history rhyming, uh, rather macabre rhyme, that it's 100 years exactly since Benito Mussolini marched on Rome, the original creator of fascism. So there are local sort of particularities to the Italian result, but, and low population, I guess, and fear of immigration sort of always fed into the right in Italy. More generally, though, I do think there are some conditions that most democracies share, a malaise, a sense of malaise that most democracies share. And what they have is sort of proven alternatives on the right, hopeless in terms of how they govern but proven in terms of their durability electorally now. And there are affinities between this part, these parties. So George Maloney is a protege of Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was visiting her in Italy long before anybody had heard of the Brothers of Italy party. There are a lot of ties between these groups. She's a star of CPAC, the main um, conservative conference, as, of course, has Victor Orban been for a long time. 
So they are helping each other and they draw strength from each other. And the sort of avalanche of congratulations you saw from the American right and the right all across Europe and Orban, who said, bravo, Georgia, does tell you something about the kinds of inspiration they draw from each other's successes. I saw one right-wing podcaster saying, oh, this win of the right in Italy, these are normal people. This is center, you know, this is, this is the way policy ought to be. So we shall see with regard to this. David, for whatever it's worth, while, while, while Ed was talking, I pulled up the most recent Pew poll on global support for democratic principles. And it is pretty grim. Uh, majorities in across 27 nations they polled in 2018, 58.4% thought politicians were corrupt. 56% in 2021 say their political system needs major changes, and roughly two-thirds or more express this opinion in Italy, Spain, the U.S., South Korea, Greece, France, Belgium, and Japan. And when you look at the specifics, when they try to break down what does democracy mean by, by specifics, things like an independent judiciary, free speech, human rights groups can operate openly, opposition parties can operate openly, just over half favored things like human rights groups operating openly and opposition parties operating openly as, as important to them, which means that almost half thought it wasn't. That's very interesting. I, I would also point out, as uh, Ed intimated, but the party of Georgia Maloney, I think, got 26% of the vote. In other words, it, it, you know, it's, it's similar to here. These are, these are subsets of the, of the whole Anyway, I've got a couple of other questions and a couple of other issues before we then go uh, to Corey's interesting critique of the Biden administration foreign policy. But Corey, before we went on the air, I heard you went to Ukraine. I was wondering what your takeaway was on your visit to Ukraine. Yes, it was a great privilege that the Polish think tank PISM, with support from the Polish government, took a group of defense nerds to Kiev and its surrounding areas to talk to Ukrainians, both in the government, in business and civil society, about the war and security more broadly. The most interesting thing for me was just how tough and united the Ukrainian society is about pushing Russia out of their territory and how no-nonsense they are about the risks they are running in order to do that. It was really impressive to see the society pull together. Just to give you one example, President Zelensky had a 27% approval rating before the Russian invasion. He has a 97% approval rating now, and it's not unique to him. The Polish defense ministry has a 98% approval rating. The Polish, excuse me, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian parliament has a 94% approval rating. It is fascinating to see how centripetal the effect of Russia's invasion has been. In a way, Vladimir Putin has been the father of Ukrainian nationalism because even in occupied Donetsk, anti-Russian sentiment is at an all-time high. It's a remarkable achievement militarily, politically, in terms of getting global support. I would say it's also been a kind of remarkable achievement 
from a communications perspective, somehow the Ukrainians have developed memes and social media flows and, and, and a message that is at the same time tough and yet never seems to lose its sense of humor, which I just find very unusual in this situation and, you know, enough to be worthy of comment, whether, you know, and it's, I don't associate it with Zelensky, the former comedy actor, because he's not the funny one, but the Ministry of Defense is funny. I agree. The Twitter feed of the Ministry of Defense um, mocking Russia and Putin is fabulous. You know, I'm sure I have said this before on our podcast, but I once heard an interview with the great Mel Brooks, and he was being questioned about the song Springtime for Hitler from his fabulous play, The Producers, and whether this wasn't disrespectful. And his answer was that he thinks it's really important to ridicule dictators because that brings them down to proportions where people feel like they can do something about it. That is, it's emboldening of people to ridicule dictators. And I keep thinking about that as I watch not just the Ukrainians' activity, but the NAFO fellas and all of the civil society activism that we're seeing. I mean, Possibly my favorite single act of the war is the hackers group Anonymous taking down the Russian Defense Ministry website and publicizing the contact information of everybody on the Russian MOD payroll. There's a whole Twitter site that's devoted to the Ukrainian military and cats and dogs. And it's just somehow they've They've really but it goes to the strategic objective of the Ukrainian government, which is they can only succeed with active support from free societies. They need the money. They need the weapons. They need the attention. They need the pressure on the Russian government that Ukraine itself is not strong enough to provide. And therefore, the creativity with which they are engaging all of us in caring about their problems, think by contrast at how quickly Afghanistan's sorrows have disappeared from public consciousness, or for the fact that no one has cared about serious agony these last, what, nine years. And so it is achieving a strategic objective that they are funny and engaged, as well as poignant and outraged. Do you have any thoughts on on this, Reza? Thoughts on the use of ridicule against dictators? It's her long suit. I was just about to say, it seems to me this is right up your alley. No, I mean, I was was basically going to say the same thing that Corey said. I, I I think that that is a key vulnerability of dictators. They take themselves very seriously. They can handle it emotionally when people dissent because they just get to lock them up. But being laughed at is the one thing that they, they sort of can't handle psychologically. So no, I, I, I don't know exactly how the MOD in Ukraine found funny people. You know, I don't know where they found the funny people. I don't know who the funny people are, but, but it was a brilliant strategy, both from the perspective of you know, poking Putin in the eye a bit, but also from the perspective of you know, maintaining their support globally. And I think especially 
for younger people, right? I mean, precisely because of that malaise about democracy and that general fear that political systems just aren't working anymore, economic systems just aren't working anymore. You know, I think that for a younger generation, you know, that sort of what's left, well, what's left is is humor and creativity and pluckiness, you know, and that that does come across very strongly. And I think that that is something that has helped uh, uh, inspire people to gather around. Absolutely right. Well, let me give you an example of of laughing at people in power, if not dictators. Ed, what do you think of the trust administration in the UK? It's not as funny as, you know, the people on Snake Island saying, fuck you to the Russians, which I don't know whether that was intended to be funny, but I found it really funny. And it's now been made into a stamp, right? It's true. But, but, you know, I have to say, I watch British Twitter and as the pound falls to parity with the dollar, there's a lot of anti-Liz Trust snark right now. There is. And there's lots of humor. I mean, she promised that she would hit the ground running. And of course, you know, that's, <laughs> that's now um, a very obvious sort of punchline in jokes about this comic mismanagement that's happening in Britain. Um, one that might require translation is her nickname in the city on the on the trading floors that are tanking the pound is daggers. And that's because daggers is a stop two stops further along on the London Underground on the tube than barking and barking is barking. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a lot of scope for for sort of gallows humor in Britain right now. What we have, though, isn't very funny. I mean, it is it is a it's a government that is extremely arrogant and incompetent. And I'm not sure which quality is strongest, but they they boost each other to have your foot on the on the uh, accelerator, the fiscal accelerator right down to the floor to the metal, whilst the Bank of England has got its foot slamming on the brake. What you can imagine what that does to a car, it spins round and round and round when you're accelerating and braking with equal force. And this is forcing the Bank of England to to break even more when it next meets. It's going to probably be a 100 basis point interest rate increase. So this is, um, I guess it's peak. I, you know, I never, I never thought that Johnson would be exceeded, Boris Johnson would be exceeded, but this is peak. This is peak circus time for the quality of British governance. You find it hard to imagine it could get much worse, but I suspect it will. And I'm not laughing, frankly. I'm not laughing. I am considering converting some of my not considerable dollar savings into pounds, though. <laughs> I mean, it's like we're almost one to one right now. And that would, that would bring a smile, if not a chuckle, to my face. Yeah, we're approaching one to one. It's never been one to one. Yesterday, I think it got down to a dollar, three and a half cents. I have not checked today. And by the way, the sort of... Um, Pavlovian defenses of, of trust government that, oh, look, these are A, it's speculators and hedge funds, and B, well, everybody's falling against the dollar, is belied if you just look at the numbers. The pound is falling against the rupee. It's a stunning turn of events. This is the point in the podcast where I encourage uh, everybody who is not a member to become a member by going to the dsrnetwork.com, clicking on membership, about five bucks a month. You get a lot of podcasts and you also get all the bonus content, which is what follows the little break we're about to do. If you are not a member, go become a member now and and join us for the rest. If you are a member, stand by.